Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Welcome into the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. This is episode number 42 and the final part of our American Revolution series. Guys, how's it going? Um, hope you're not sick of hearing about Revolutionary War and politics types things because you're going to get another, oh, who knows, 30, 40, 50 minutes-ish or so. I guess we'll just kind of see how long it goes. You're going to get a little bit more of that. Uh, today we're going to cover... Um, the, the final part of the war, um, uh, allies entering on the American side and completely and utterly turning the tide of the war towards the Americans. We'll uh, go over the, the last parts of the actual armed conflict, and then we'll talk about uh, the United States a little bit uh, in the aftermath of the war and kind of how things go from there, uh, if you haven't listened to the last two, I suggest that uh, if you're just popping in randomly on this one, say you went to your podcast uh, thing and you're a person who searched, oh, click, 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 American Revolution. I want to hear about that. Uh, I would suggest that you go back to part one because who listens to part three before doing part one? That's like watching Back to the Future part three when you have to watch the classic Back to the Future first. You got to do it. You got to go back to part one. So if, if you are one of those people, I suggest you go back to uh, the number one and take a listen to that and then part two and then part three so you can get the entire picture of the situation. Uh, when we left off last week, we were talking about the the intervention of, of foreign uh, uh, men who would come in like Baron von Steuben who would come in and train these ragtag American troops in the ways of European war and conflict, which turned this group of idiots that would that would run around like crazy people and really all they had holding themselves together was this, this idea of American patriotism, and all of a sudden they became an actual fighting force. And you would see this towards the end of the war. It really did turn things around. So without further ado... Guys, part three of the American Revolution Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, episode number 42. Guys, stick with us. So as we talked about last week, the American fortunes were changing because foreign powers were were gathering their people and saying, hey, um, our hatred of, 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 of the English is so ridiculous that we are going to we are going to help these other English people, because mind you, at this point, um, the American colonies are, are considered very British and those people uh, living therein are also considered um, British Citizens, you know, you still had loyalists and stuff running around trying to help the British out because they too, even though they they were native, you know, or you know, not native, but they had been born and lived in the colonies their entire lives, considered themselves British citizens. Um, so many foreign countries were just like, 
fuck the British, we hate them so much, we are going to help these new upstart Americans. This really turned the tide of the war. And we talked about it last week um, with people like um, the Marquis uh, de Lafayette and then Baron von Steuben from Germany or Prussia more more properly um, coming over and, and helping the Americans out in, in their own different ways. And we see this in particular at the Battle of Saratoga. Now, the Battle of Saratoga took place. There's two battles of Saratoga. They took place uh, a few weeks apart, one on September the 19th of 1777 and one on October the 7th of 1777. Saratoga is about, if you look at a map of New York today, if you look at New York City and Long Island, kind of that area, if you just draw a line straight north, about halfway up the map in New York um, State, that is where Saratoga is. And in Saratoga, you had a, a, an American force that was really kind of waiting to get beaten the shit out of, uh, for lack of a better term. You had uh, General Horatio Gates in command of this force, and you had British General um, John Burgoyne, who is leading an invasion army southward from Canada, saying, hey, I'm going to lead my army south from Canada. I'm going to have these other armies meet me from the west and from the south. We're going to pincer their asses in and just smash any any hope of the American Continental Army north of New York. Now, remember, New York is, 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 is halfway occupied. Uh, Philadelphia is halfway occupied by the British at this point. So they're like, we're just going to start moving south. Um, from British-controlled Canada. And if you'll remember, obviously, the, the failed attempt for the Americans to jump into Canada to actually make any headway. Now the British are on the, the offensive going the other direction and are saying, we're going to head down from Canada and we're just going to make this shit happen. We're going to smash these Americans and we're going to call it good. Unfortunately, um, and we may have mentioned this in the last episode, but if we didn't mention it in particular, I will mention it in this episode, um, intelligence, military intelligence in terms of like where you know things are going to be, how many troops, so on and so forth, the amount of stuff you know about your opponent, um, uh, military intelligence was really pretty shitty at this point in time. Not many people were very good at it. And um, I would say one of the biggest reasons why the British did so poorly in the in the American Revolution, despite having a superior military, despite having better tactics overall, is because they didn't know what was going on. The fog of war, so to speak, was pulled over their eyes and they just could not see, you know, in those sort of terms, 10 feet in front of them. They, they could not. Uh, know what the Americans were doing. And the Americans, this being their their own native soil, took great advantage of the fact that the the, the British just didn't know what the hell was going on. Just figured, hey, we have the the this this red coat army. We're amazing. We're the goddamn British. Look at our empire. The sun never sets on the British Empire. This should be a walk in the park. We're just gonna march our guys down and no matter what we run into, we're just gonna win. And that was not the case, especially in the battles of Saratoga. In fact, um, General Burgoyne from the British led his forces southward and was not at all prepared for the fact that the American force that he would meet was much, much larger than he anticipated. So much so that he had to actually make a retreat um, and his force was eventually surrounded by American troops. One of the generals in the American forces was a man that we talked about a little bit before, a man by the name of Benedict Arnold. Now, Benedict Arnold, at this point, 1777, still wasn't a treasonous asshole to the United States. Benedict Arnold was still considered a, a an American patriot. He actually anticipated some of Burgoyne's moves and placed significant forces in his way and was actually one of the most important pieces to the American forces winning in the battles of Saratoga. So, you have the British being completely and utterly humiliated at Saratoga, something they thought they could definitely win. I mean, you have British forces up in Canada ready to go. The Americans have already screwed up the Canadian thing. They they screwed it up so bad that they're like, okay, we're just retreating in. We're just going to completely ignore the Canadian part from this point. 
the British have these ports in Canada that they can roll people into. They have a, a perfect area to roll people into, cut off, you know, New England from the rest of the colonies. It's a perfect strategy, yet they still find a way to fuck it up. And Benedict Arnold was one of the main guys, along with General Horatio Gates, in making the battles of Saratoga successful on the side of the Americans. In fact, only 90 were killed on the American side with 240 casualties in terms of wounded, while on the British side, 440 were killed, 700 wounded, and all and over 6,000 men were captured by the Americans. That is a ass beating that you shouldn't take if you have the superior military. And this, this right here, the Saratoga battles were the turning point in the American Revolutionary War, not just because the Americans actually showed up to a battle and did what they needed to do, but this showed all the people watching from the outside, the Frances and the Spains of the world, to say, hey, yikes, we hate the British, and these Americans are kind of making them look like dumb assholes, and I think they can maybe win. We should throw our hats in the ring and make sure that they win because we goddamn hate England so bad. And that's what happened. The defeat at Saratoga caused considerable anxiety in the British over foreign intervention. And, and it was very much uh, uh, due anxiety. So much so that um, Lord North, who was the prime minister at this time in, in, in Great Britain, actually was like, hey, maybe we should seek reconciliation with the colonies from their original olive branch demands. Maybe we should just stop this war before it gets any worse for us. Although they still didn't want to grant the Americans independence because they were still so stout on the entire thing. Of course, at this point, you know, this is the Americans going, why would we do this now? We, we can actually win this thing. We're not going to give you what you want. We're just going to keep fighting and we're going to get what we want to get out of this situation. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you're playing a video game and you're kicking ass and you're awesome. It's like a, it's like a game of mortal combat. You know, you have three rounds in the first round, you just beat the shit out of your opponent. You're like, great. And then the second round, your opponent beats you, and you're like, okay, it's fine. We have a third round. And then halfway through the third round, when you're getting your ass kicked, you're like, oh, okay, okay, we'll just call it a draw. We'll just call it a draw. Everything's everything's fine. Everything's good. Everything's great, right? And they're like, no, dude, we're going to keep playing. We're going to keep playing until the end of it. So the, the British are backtracking super-duper hard. French Foreign Minister, the Comte de Veriennes, was strongly, strongly, of course, it's French. This is the way they are, strongly anti-British. And he sought this as an opportunity to also go to war with the British. The French had covertly at this point supplied the Americans um, through Dutch ports since the onset of the war. But at this point, we're now going to go from um, clandestine operations to full-blown actual ships and troops in the war. The French public highly supported this war. They were very much into the idea, and this would obviously play very much into the French uh, Revolution just a few years later, very much in the idea of this Republican um, revolution. You know, fuck the monarchy. We hate them. Um, we hate our own monarchy, and also we hate the British monarchy, and and these, these, these patriotic Americans are trying to, you know, loose the shackles of of King George the Third, so we are going to help them. And, you know, support was very popular among the lower public. Now, King Louis the Sixteenth was a little bit more hesitant, and uh, obviously the French public and King Louis the Sixteenth didn't quite see eye to eye. So much so that in a few years, King Louis the Sixteenth would lose his head to the guillotine, among many other um, many other rich people um, in France during the American Revolution. But that is a complete other story that we may cover a little bit down the line. Um, Louis the Louis the Sixteenth thought that maybe because the Americans had won at Saratoga, and that Lord North um, uh, of the British was saying, "Hey, maybe we should just you know consolidate. We'll just we'll just you know we'll give them what they want, whatever." He thought that maybe the uh, the colonies and the British would actually come to some sort of agreement, and the colonies would go back to being British, and all of a sudden these now new you know redone British were going to strike. At, at, at French assets, particularly in uh, the Caribbean. But despite all of that, the, the, the French still formally recognized the United States as a nation later on February 6th of 1778. 
and followed that with a military alliance formally sending aid to uh, to the Americans across the ocean. They aimed to expel Britain from the Newfoundland fishery, end restrictions on Dunkirk sovereignty, regain free trade in India, recover Senegal and Dominica, and restore the Treaty of Utrecht provisions pertaining to Anglo-French trade. They're like, hey, this is a perfect opportunity to... Uh, to fuck up the British, all the things that we've been doing for the last amount of time. We are going to take all that stuff back. This is a perfect end. So obviously the French public support the American Revolution in a very like, you know, sort of metaphysical, just this this idea of revolution, while the monarchy of France more is like, hey, we can get back all the shit that we lost to the British. We should go in here. So a little bit of a of a, an, an ulterior motive. But d- despite all that, the French did enter the war on the side of the American patriots. Spain was also wary of provoking war with Britain before they were ready, so they also covertly supplied the patriots via um, their colonies in New Spain, like Florida, for example. Um, They, too, like France, were just giving stuff to the Americans without really declaring war, jumping into war, um, doing all that kind of stuff. The American Continental Congress hoped to persuade Spain into a full-blown open alliance, much like the one they have with France. So they met in 1776 to talk about that. While Spain was still reluctant to make any early commitment owing to a lack of direct French involvement, they if they, they were going to go in, they wanted the French to go in with them as well. And, and by 1779, the Spanish do enter into an alliance with France, mostly, like I'm saying before, this is more of an ulterior motive sort of situation. Um, the French and Spanish, I mean, this is Europe. Europe is old. They have their own old conflicts that they've had for hundreds of years, hundreds of different, you know, monarchs. It's just the it's, it's European history. It's, it's complex and old and weird. The American portion of it is very new. So the Americans have their own thing. They want to be separate from the British. They want to be their own thing. The French like the idea of American independence, mostly because it makes the British weaker. So they help the Americans in order to make the, the the British weaker. Spain has the exact same idea. They enter into an alliance with France, which is basically a, a an offshoot alliance with the Americans to make the British weaker. The, the, the Spanish, just like the French, want to recover a lot of stuff. They want to recover Gibraltar, and Menorca in Europe, they want to get Mobile and Pensacola in Florida and expel the British completely and utterly from Central America. At this point, George III was like, oh, God damn it. He started to give up on completely and utterly subduing the Americans because he now had a European war to fight, another European war to fight. He didn't want to fight France, but he did believe that the British would be able to 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 do well against France, and he cited, you know, the 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 Seven Years' War, um, which you know the, was the French and Indian War just a few years before, uh, as a reason to remain optimistic that the British could overcome another war with France. Now they tried very hard to um, gain the support of their their neutral ally, the the Dutch. Now the Dutch were also, interestingly enough covertly supplying the Americans with stuff, just like the Spanish were and just like the French were. The Dutch were also giving supplies to the Americans. The the the, the American idea of independence was also popular among the Dutch public, and the British tried so hard. They were like, guys, you are our ally. Help us out here. And the Dutch were like, eh, we're not going to do that. And the British were like, look at all these treaties we signed. You know, you said that you would support us. Look at all these treaties. And the Dutch are like, we're still not going to do that. Uh, We're just going to keep giving the Americans shit through the West Indies. And this led the British to declare outright war on the Dutch Republic in 1780. So now you actually kind of have, and this is the thing that people don't really realize about the American Revolution, because you say American Revolution. Ah, yes, the fighting in the actual American colonies. This is what it's all about. The American Revolution was technically a world war. It, it had become an international type of war. Now, it wasn't a huge world war because it only involved the Americans and some European powers. And then you might also consider some of the stuff that was happening um, on the North African coast 
uh, as being part of it as well. But it was not a war that was just just limited to the American mainland. It was a war that was international at this point. Soon after France had declared war, the French and British fleets started just a fight right away. They fought battles um, all over the place in 1778. Spain then entered the war later in 1779, like we talked about with that, and started to uh, lay siege on different British ports all over the place. So you have all these naval battles going on in Europe because of an American reason to go to war. And now despite this sort of world war going on, let's move back to the American theater and, and you know, sort of finish up our story on the American Revolution. Um, the North sort of entered a stalemate of conflict as the French entered the war. Uh, Henry Clinton, the British general, uh, withdrew from Philadelphia completely, then consolidating his forces uh, in New York following the British defeat at Saratoga. Um, French Admiral uh, Comte d'Estaing uh, had been dispatched to North America in 1778, in April of 1778 to be 100% particular, to assist General Washington and arrived shortly after Clinton withdrew into New York. Uh, the Franco-American forces felt that New York's defenses were probably still too formidable for the French fleet. Remember, the New Yorkers or the uh, British had just smashed everything into New York and held this as the the the, the true bastion of their northern power. Um, they still opted to attack Newport, which is close by. This effort was launched on August the 29th, but it failed when the French opted to withdraw from that particular battle, which made the Americans super mad. This then led to a stalemate with the majority of actions fought as a lot of just skirmishes around the area rather than full-blown battles. In July of that year, uh, Clinton unsuccessfully attempted to coke General Washington into a decisive engagement by making a major raid up into Connecticut. That month, a large uh, American naval operation attempted to retake Maine. It resulted in the worst American naval defeat until later on in 1941 at Pearl Harbor. Uh, the high frequency of Iroquois raids on the locals compelled Washington to mount a punitive expedition, which destroyed a large number of Iroquois settlements, unfortunately, but the effort ultimately failed to stop the raids. The Iroquois were still fairly loyal to their British uh, uh, alliances that they had made um, at that time. During the winter then of 1779 up to 1780, the Continental Army suffered greater hardships than at Valley Forge. Morale was even more poor. Public support was being eroded by this uh, extended and long war, which had now been basically going on for four and a half, five years at this point. And the national currency um, of the colonies the at this point, this, this continental currency that was introduced during the war was basically completely and utterly worthless because of inflation. The the army was plagued with all kinds of supply problems. Desertion became more and more common. And some whole regiments ended up mutinying over the conditions uh, in 1780. In 1780, then, Clinton launched an attempt to retake New Jersey. 6,000 men invaded under Hessian. Remember the Hessians? General Wilhelm, Val, uh, Wilhelm von Kampnusen. But they met stiff resistance from the local militia. The British did held the field, but they feared a general engagement with General Washington's force that would come up and then decided to withdraw. They didn't decide on a second attempt a couple of weeks later, and they were beat soundly at the Battle of Springfield, effectively ending British ambitions in New Jersey. So New Jersey was safe at the time uh, with the Americans in demand. This point, American General Benedict Arnold defects to the British and conspires to betray the key American fortress of West Point by basically surrendering it to, en to the enemy. So just to jump back in time a little bit, we talked about uh, Benedict Arnold during the Battle of Saratoga. He was one of the heroes of the Battle of Saratoga, but he did uh, undergo a really bad leg injury during that battle that would put him up um, uh, in terms of recovery for a very long time. In fact, um, the wound to his leg was so severe, um, it probably should have been amputated, to be completely honest, but he did survive, and the leg was crudely set, 
and eventually left it two inches shorter than the other leg. So he had this like permanent hobble, obviously, for the rest of his life. He then returned to Valley Forge, like we are talking about. Um, and he went there and he was just the talk of the whole camp. Everybody loved him. You know, Benedict Arnold, the hero uh, of Saratoga. And during his time there, he then signed one of the first recorded Oaths of Allegiance, along with a bunch of other people, um, at that time as a sign of loyalty to the United States. Um, it reads, I, Benedict Arnold, Major General, do acknowledge the United States of America to be free, independent, and sovereign states, and declare that the people thereof owe no allegiance or obedience to, uh, to George III, King of Great Britain, and I renounce, refuse, and abjure any allegiance or obedience to him, and I do swear that I will, to the utmost of my power, support, maintain, and defend the said United States against the said King George III, his heirs and successors, and his or their abettors, uh, assistance and adherence, and will serve the, the said United States in the office of Major General, which I now hold with fidelity according to the best of my skill and understanding, and then it is signed um, by Benedict Arnold at Valley Forge, uh, in May of 1778. Despite having signed this oath of loyalty, Benedict Arnold was kind of sick of the entire conflict. Now, remember, he was uh, successful at Saratoga, but he was a very much a failure a couple of years before that when it came to the campaign into Quebec, into Canada. Remember the whole failed American campaign up into Canada? Benedict Arnold was part of that, and they fucked it up royally. So bad, they had to, to run back with their tails tucked between their legs. He is very fortunate that his reputation was saved, at that point at least, by doing well at the Battle of Saratoga. Uh, General Washington then appoints Arnold as the military commander of a now-abandoned Philadelphia, like we were talking about. The, the, the British abandoned Philadelphia to consolidate their forces in New York. General Washington appoints uh, Arnold as the temporary military commander of the city since we're still in war. They're basically under, I, I guess, a form of martial law or something and historian John Shy writes about this, stating, quote, Washington then made one of the worst decisions of his career, appointing Arnold as military governor of the rich, politically divided city. No one could have been less qualified for the position. Arnold had amply demonstrated his tendency to become embroiled in disputes, as well as his lack of political sense. Above all, he needed tact, patience, and fairness in dealing with a people deeply marked by months of enemy occupation. So they got a guy who was war-torn, threw him into a, 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 an office that he should not have had in a city that had just undergone months of occupation by the British that were now free to do what they wanted to do, and now you have this guy going into it to fuck everything up. He began planning to capitalize financially on the change in power in Philly even before the Americans reoccupied the city. He engaged in a variety of business deals designed to profit from war-related supply movements and benefiting from the protection of his authority. Schemes like this were not uncommon among American officers, but Arnold's schemes were sometimes frustrated by powerful local politicians who eventually amassed enough evidence to publicly air charges against him. And of course, like we saw in the John Shy quote, he was not a guy that was afraid to go up and fight somebody. He was frustrated this entire time. He felt that the country that he was serving owed him something. He said... Quote, having become a cripple in the service of my country, I little expected to meet ungrateful returns, unquote. He thought, hey, I just got my leg fucked up for you idiots, and the least you could do is help me out and make this thing work for me, and you're just going to be like this? I don't understand. Arnold still, despite all this, lived extravagantly in Philadelphia and was a prominent figure in their social scene. During the summer of 1778, he met Peggy Shippen, who is the uh, the 18-year-old daughter of Judge Edward Shippen, who was a loyalist sympathizer, who had done uh, business with the British while they still occupied Philadelphia. Peggy had been courted by British Major John Andre during the British occupation of Philadelphia, but she then married uh, Benedict Arnold on April the 8th of 1779, the next year. Shippen and her circle of friends had found methods of staying in contact with people across battle lines despite military bans on communication with the enemy. As you can tell, the seeds are being planted for treasonous treachery. Not only did 
Arnold marry a woman who was very much, her and her family, very much uh, sympathetic to the British cause and very much wanted that to be, you know, part of what they were doing. He was also uh, an angry man, a, a man who felt like he was owed something from his country, a man who was in pain all the time, a man who just wanted to make things right. In fact, most people at this point, uh, in terms of the the upper class uh, of Americans, really didn't like Benedict Arnold that much. In fact, George Washington is one of the only people who actually did like him a reasonable amount, which is the only reason why he ended up being in Philadelphia as, um, as the military commander of that town. Uh, Benedict also had a very expensive taste. He, he, like I said, he liked to run in these high society parties, and these high society parties were really expensive. Not only did he rub elbows with people that were very pro-British, he also spent a shitload of money entertaining these people and got himself into a little bit of indebted trouble. Uh, because of this, he would eventually offer West Point um, in New York as a prize to the British uh, for the, the sum of 20,000 uh, pounds sterling, which would cure any of his, his indebted problems. In 1779, May of 1779 in particular, Arnold meets with a man named Joseph Stansbury, who is a Philadelphia merchant um, who is very pro-British. Stansbury said that he then went secretly to New York um, to talk to Sir Henry Clinton. We talked about Clinton before with the fuck up in Saratoga, whatever. He goes to talk to Henry Clinton. Um, he then also talks to Jonathan O'Dell and gets him in on this particular plot. He, you know, gets Benedict Arnold in correspondence with all these men, and he gets them in contact with the aforementioned uh, John Andre, who had just been named to uh, the British intelligence's spy chief, or whatever you would like to call it at that time. This marked the beginning of a secret correspondence between Benedict Arnold and John Andre, sometimes Arnold using his wife Peggy as a willing intermediary that culminated over a year as Arnold changed sides from the American to the British side. Uh, Andre would confer with uh, General Clinton, who gave him broad authority to pursue Benedict Arnold's offer of treason. Andre then drafted instructions to Stansbury and Arnold. This initial letter opened a discussion on the types of assistance and intelligence that Benedict Arnold might provide and included instructions for how to communicate in the future. Letters had to be passed through the women's circle that Peggy Arnold was a part of, but only Peggy would be aware that some of these letters contained instructions that were to be passed on to Andre, written in both code and invisible ink, using Stansberry uh, as the courier, giving the letters to and, and fro. By July of 1779, Benedict Arnold was providing the British with troop locations and strengths, as well as locations of supply depots, all while negotiating over compensation. At first, he asked for £10,000, um, which is an amount the Continental Congress had given Charles Lee for his services in the Continental Army. Uh, General Clinton was pursuing a campaign to gain control of the Hudson River Valley and was interested in plans and information on the defenses of the aforementioned West Point and other defenses on the Hudson River. He also started to uh, insist on face-to-face -face meetings with Arnold and suggested that he pursue pursue, excuse me, another high-level command in the American forces to, you know, gather more information for him. By October of 1779, the negotiations then ground to a halt. Furthermore, Patriot mobs were scouring Philadelphia for loyalists. At this point, they knew shit was going down, going around, trying to get all these goddamn Tories out of Philly, and Arnold and the Shippen family were being threatened. Arnold was rebuffed by Congress and by local authorities in his requests for security details for himself and his in-laws. Congress is like, fuck you, Benedict. You don't get anything. There's then a, uh, a court-martial that, that takes place with Benedict Arnold as the, uh, the, the treasonous plot is starting to somewhat be brought to light. And this, this court-martial started on June the 1st of 1779 but uh, was delayed until December 1779 because of you know other battles happening during the American Revolution, pushing everything back. Uh, several members of the panel of judges were ill-disposed towards Arnold over actions, uh, but he was cleared of all the charges 
in January 26th of 1780. He then uh, worked over the next few months to publicize the fact that he was innocent. Um, but George Washington was like, you look like an asshole doing all this shit. And at this point, Arnold is just like, fuck it. Like, we're just going to do it. So he ends up somehow gaining command of West Point and is still in communication with, with John Andre back and forth saying, hey, I found a way to have West Point. I'm going to weaken the shit out of this place so that you guys can just roll up and take the thing without any sort of any sort of resistance and it'll be easy and you'll you'll further secure New York for uh, for the British forces. At this point, he um he he's he's arrived at West Point. He is he's doing his best to weaken the entire place. Uh him and John Andre meet on September the 21st. Um talking about what Arnold is going to do to to give West Point up, and Arnold is also making plans to get the fuck out of Dodge here really quick. Uh, the ship that was going to take him uh, away from West Point was fired upon, and it had to, to leave, so Arnold was basically stuck at West Point. Uh, Andre then had to go over land instead of also getting on this ship, which led to him being captured near Terrytown in New York. Um, by three Westchester militiamen. Uh, they then found the papers exposing the plot to capture West Point and send them, sent them excuse me, to General Washington, and Arnold's intentions then came to light after General Washington then examined these papers. In the end, Benedict Arnold wasn't ever captured by the United States, although George Washington very much wanted to, and commanded his men, if they ever saw him, to capture him and hang him immediately. Um, Arnold did did defect over to the, the English side and actually fought in the war on the English side for a little while before the war ended, then ran up to Canada where he spent the rest of his days, then you know living till 1801 where he died in delirium. So that's a, a fun little like 15-minute side story on Benedict Arnold. Anyhow, this is what's happening in the, the North during the revolution the the patriots are having a tough time really making any ground the british aren't really making any ground either and it gets to the point where turncoats are becoming a thing you know somebody's trying to find an advantage somewhere because of this the british then turn their attention to conquering the southern colonies we haven't talked a lot about the southern colonies this entire time but the british turn their attention to conquering the southern colonies in 1778 as their uh, as their campaign in the north has basically stalled out so they would continue fighting what they're doing in the north but they figured if they can make up some some sort of real ground in the south that they might eventually turn that victory into a, a, a sort of momentum that will gain victory in the north and the british are actually fairly successful at first in the south they capture charleston uh, in a huge siege that is one of the worst losses uh, for the Americans the entire Revolutionary War. Although, the entire time, they have Charleston. They also have Savannah in Georgia. Uh, the British figured if we have a strong presence in the South, not only can we you know, help win this war in general, but we also have our, our naval forces close to the Caribbean, where we're going to be fighting the French because of all the French interests down there as well. Um, they do well at first in the South, but continue to just kind of teeter around a lot like they do in the North um, because loyalist support really isn't that strong in the South either. And uh, patriotic militias continue to basically wage guerrilla warfare on the British actually having success here and there uh, in victories like Fairfield County, Lincolnton, um, Huck's Defeat, Stanley County, and Lancaster County all in the South. Um, Gen uh, Congress eventually appoints Horatio Gates, who we talked about uh, as one of the victors at Saratoga, to lead the American effort in the South, although he does fairly poorly. And then General Washington replaces him with Nathaniel Green, who actually does wage a fairly successful campaign against the British in the South, to the point that by the end of the war, there were still skirmishes going along between the two, but the American forces had had generally retaken most of the places that they had lost during the war and would obviously regain them completely and utterly by the end of the war. This then leads to the culmination of this war in Yorktown. Uh, Yorktown is in the Virginia area of the United States. General Cornwallis, who had been leading a lot of the southern 
uh, commands at this point, doing extremely well, makes his way back up north and figures out that the majority of American supplies in the Carolinas were passing through Virginia, and he felt like he was going to invade this place, cut off American supplies there, and really make this this Southern War a, a decisive British victory, head north, and just crush everything. He believed that a successful campaign would cut supplies not only to the Northern Army, but the Southern Army, led by Nathaniel Green, and basically collapse the entire American resistance in the South. It would be an extremely good victory for uh, Cornwallis. Unfortunately, between Cornwallis and Henry Clinton, who was up in New York City at this point, there was a miscommunication between the two. Cornwallis was very strongly opinionated on the fact that this would work, that this this uh, this Yorktown battle would be the shit. Whereas Henry Clinton was like, hey, dude, send your people up to New York. We're having a tough time with these Americans. We can't make any headway. We need help. Well, they, they sort of disagreed on which was the most important. And, of course, this led to the splitting of the forces. In fact, as the Americans and the French were trying to figure out what they were going to do, they were basically hovering between, you know, New York and, and, and then heading south and, and, and meeting in Virginia and doing something. Clinton notices that the French and American uh, naval movements are happening around New York City, and he fears that they're ready for a humongous attack um, and starts to, to freak out in the city, asking Cornwallis to come and help him. Well, Cornwallis doesn't know any of this is going on because communication is fairly slow, so he instead digs in at Yorktown, awaiting the Royal Navy to come down and help him against what he assumed would be American and French people attacking at that point. So there's a miscommunication between uh, the two British lines. Washington, at this point, did want to attack New York, but he acquiesced to the French, who were more open to attacking in Virginia, thinking that this was the best uh, line of attack, the best place that they could to jump in and have a decisive victory. They then opted to send their fleet to their preferred target of Yorktown and Washington, like we said, acquiesced and sent his troops down there as well. In August, the combined Franco-American army moved south to coordinate with DeGrasse in defeating uh, Lord Cornwallis. The British lacked sufficient naval resources because they weren't sent down to effectively counter the French, but they did dispatch a fleet under, under Thomas Graves to assist Cornwallis in attempt to gain naval dominance. They would not. The French fleet decisively defeated Graves on September the 5th, giving the French controls of the seas around Yorktown and cutting Cornwallis off completely and utterly from reinforcements and relief. The siege of Yorktown then begins. Despite the continued urging of his subordinates, General Cornwallis made no attempt to break out and engage the army before it had established its siege, expecting that reinforcements would eventually arrive from New York and break that siege and save him from everything. Cornwallis continued to think that relief was imminent from Clinton, and he abandoned his outer defenses, which were immediately then taken by American troops, serving to hasten the defeat that he was eventually going to have. The British then failed in an attempt to break out of the siege across uh, the river at uh, Gloucester Point when a storm hit. Cornwallis and his subordinates were under increasing bombardment and faced dwindling supplies, dwindling, dwindling, dwindling because of the siege. They then agreed that their situation was untenable and negotiated a surrender on October the 17th of 1781, and 7,685 soldiers became prisoners of the Americans. The same day as that surrender, 6,000 troops under Clinton had departed New York, sailing to relieve Yorktown. Too little too late. This would basically decisively be the end of the the major war in America. The 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 surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown is often cited as the major major turning point, basically saying the Americans and the French have soundly defeated a large and successful British force and there's really nothing that the British could do because this would eventually even if they wanted to you know, lengthen the conflict, and they probably could have if they, they felt the need to. If the British wanted to lengthen this conflict, it would just end up being a, this drawn-out thing, and they would just continue to lose money and continue to lose troops, and it was just, like we said before, it was an untenable situation. 
um, Lord North, uh, the prime minister in England, becomes extremely unpopular. Um, there is a vote to end the war in Parliament on December 12th of 1781, which fails. Then the next year, uh, in 1782, their parliament then does vote against further war in America by 19 votes. Lord Germain was dismissed with a vote of no confidence, um, passed against Lord North. So the, the English are in disarray. Their, their parliament is just like, this is stupid. We don't want to do war anymore. These prime ministers keep wanting us to be in war. We'll fuck them, get rid of them. This is stupid. Now, the war doesn't end in 17... 81, like, you know, a lot of people think they see Yorktown, they say that's the end of the Revolutionary War. Well, the, the, the war goes on for a couple years longer, but it's mostly minor skirmishes here and there, and it's mostly skirmishes between the European powers that are still fighting against each other as well in places like, you know, over in Europe, on the American side, and over in India as well. In 1783, then, uh, the Treaty of Paris, one of many treaties of paris there are many treaties of paris uh, named the same thing uh was signed this one in particular was the 1783 treaty that would end the war now interestingly enough after that entire you know this entire like three plus hour series of talking about the revolutionary war we're talking about this this intense anger between the american patriots and the british loyalists but during negotiations in paris the American delegation discovered that France, although they would support independence, didn't support any territorial gains. Now, obviously, the French owned the Louisiana Purchase, you know, which would become the Louisiana Purchase, but all that territory out west, the French did own and had no um, no intent of giving this new American nation any of their territory. Um, according to them, they wanted their um, the, the United States to be confined to the area east of the Appalachian Mountains. The American delegation then owns direct, then open, excuse me, direct secret negotiations with the British. Literally right after they get done fighting them, open up negotiations with the British, just like that, boom. Um, they don't tell the French, obviously, about what they're going to do. British Prime Minister Lord Shelbourne, at this point, was in full charge of these British negotiations, and he saw it as a chance to make this new United States a valuable economic partner because obviously of all the British colonies, the Americans were the richest of the colonies. Knowing the potential of that, he said, hey, if we can't beat them, we might as well join them and get that economic benefit that we were trying to get anyway, but we'll do it as partners instead of, you know, as the their, their lords of dominion over them. They would then allow the U.S. to obtain all land east of the Mississippi, east of the Mississippi River, which was way west of where the French thought it should be, any land south of Canada and north of Florida and uh, gained fishing rights off Canadian coasts, uh, agreed to uh, allow British merchants and loyalists to try and actually recover their property. It was a highly favorable treaty for the United States. The United States did accept it, and this was deliberate on Lord Shelburne's part. He decided to give a bunch away at first in order to you know manifest this new relationship and he, because he foresaw this highly profitable two-way trade between his native Britain and the rapidly new and growing United States. And obviously this indeed came to pass. It's still happening today. As we talk on this podcast, the The United States and the United Kingdom are very tight. They are, they are two of the tightest powers ever. You know, when you talk about war between the two, it almost seems unreasonable as the in modern day, the two are, are, you know, have their special relationship. They are two of the closest allies in the world. American merchants at this point were free now that the blockade was lifted to trade with any nation in the world and businesses everywhere uh, started to flourish. Now, what happened to Britain otherwise besides Lord Shelburne doing what he did to get uh, uh, Americans this very um, pro-mercantile type of, of trade? Losing the war and the 13 colonies altogether was a complete and utter shock to the British. The war revealed the limitations of Britain's fiscal military state. They were not immortal. They were not invulnerable. They could be beaten. The defeat would also heighten uh, dissension and it would escalate political antagonism to the king's ministers inside of parliament itself. 
the main concern changed from fears of an overmighty monarch, which had been the fear for the last couple hundred years, you know, the all-powerful monarch, we don't want that shit. The fear changed from that to issues like representation, parliamentary reform, and government retrenchment. Reformers then sought to destroy what they saw as widespread institutional corruption that they thought led to this whole war and this shenanigans in the first place. The peace in 1783 left uh, France financially fucked up. The British were financially fucked up. Everybody was screwed. Everybody spent so much money on this war. Interestingly enough, the British, while losing a bunch of money on this war, still held on to a decent economy in the years that followed thanks to the return of American business trading partners while the French actually kind of suffered because of this. The French spent a great deal of money helping the Americans out and they didn't really have a whole ton to show with it. It was a really just a mostly a big fuck you to the British having lost their colonies. But in the end, the British were like, we don't care. We lost our colonies, so what? It sucks. Everybody's mad about it. But in the end, we're still going to make the money that we're going to make while you guys are in total disarray. And this actually probably led to a better British response to the French Revolution uh, in, in a few years down the road than they would have had had they still you know been embroiled in this whole colonial thing because it was probably a matter of, of more when the colonies were going to separate from the British than, than if. So if it would have been happening maybe a little bit later on down the line, say the colonies weren't such upstarty, but the French Revolution was still going to take place when it normally took place, and then the American Revolution maybe took place at the same time, it would just be a, a, a total terrible shit show for the British. Instead, it really wasn't the, uh, the worst thing ever. This war cost about a hundred million pounds sterling at the time. Uh, the treasury borrowed 40% of the money that it needed. Heavy spending um, brought France to the verge of bankruptcy and revolution, like we talked about. While the British had relatively little difficulty financing their war, still spent a great deal of money. American coffers at this time were also extremely empty. The Americans probably had the most difficulty actually financing their own side of the war. In 1775, there was at most, at most, $12 million worth of gold in the colonies, which was not nearly enough to cover any of the current transactions that were going along, let alone finance a major conflict. The British made the situation much worse by imposing their very tight blockade on, Amer on every American port, which cut off almost all imports and exports. Obviously, when the French and Spanish and the Dutch came into the war on the side of the Americans and helped start to break up these, some of these blockades, this helped a great deal. Um, also, the financial support of those countries during the war was another big thing that helped the American forces. The Americans tried to, to print paper money and do things along those lines, uh, in order to help pay off their debt. But of course, we know when you print money like crazy, you inflate money like crazy. And the phrase is not worth a continental, which was the, the, the name of the, the paper money at the time, became a very common saying because um, this $242 million worth of paper money that would be put into the economy and supposedly redeemed um, from state taxes was paid off in 1791 at the rate of one cent on the dollar, basically losing 99% of its value straight up right there. Not a good situation. Either way, though, the Americans did bounce back with, you know, that heavily happy pro-business and trade treaty um, with the other nations in particular, the British that they had just had a fight with, and things would not be all that terrible when it came down to it. When the war finally did end in 1783, it was followed by a period of prosperity. The national government was still operating at this point under the Articles of Confederation and was able to settle the issue of the Western territories, which were ceded by the states to Congress. American settlers moved rapidly into all these areas, including Vermont and Kentucky and Tennessee, all becoming states in the Union by the 1790s. However, at this point, the national government had no money to pay either the war debts owed to European nations and the private banks or to pay Americans who had been given millions of dollars of notes, those continentals, for supplies during the war. Nationalists led by Washington 
Alexander Hamilton and other veterans feared that the new nation was just too fragile to withstand an international war or, you know, other internal revolts like Shays Rebellion, which took place in 1786. They were just like, Jesus, we just won this war. We don't have any money. We're prospering, but God, it's so fragile. It's just like a Fabergé egg. We need to figure something out because if somebody sees how fragile we are and decides to launch some sort of war against us, we're not going to have any way to defend ourselves. They then start a new party called the Federalists, um, and they convinced Congress to call the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. In this convention, they then adopt the new and still current law of the land of the United States, the United States Constitution, which would then provide for a much stronger federal government than did the Articles of Confederation, including an effective executive in the check and balance system with also the judiciary, which is the Supreme Court, and the legislature, which is the Senate and the House of Representatives. So at this point, you know, it, it, the Articles of Confederation are like, hey, you states are mostly basically sovereign. We all come together. We make a little thing and we're all doing our thing, but each state is doing their own thing, and there's just no, like, national unity, and if war were to break out again, it would probably end up being an, an, an every-state-for-themselves type of situation. It would be really bad for this new fledgling nation. Now, with this new constitution, you have a stronger executive, the executive being basically the president of the United States, who would then be, like, the big boss. He would be the guy who's like, I'm the head of state, and I'm going to help make executive decisions and I'm going to be like the tiebreaker between Congress and but the judiciary is going to keep, you know, them in check and I'll keep the and it's the whole check and balances system. You know, one of the three parts of the triangle keeps the other ones in balance. You know, they have all the rules made up and it actually is an extremely effective document. It, it, if it wasn't, it still wouldn't be in effect today. The Constitution of the United States was ratified then in 1788 after a fierce debate in the states over the nature of the proposed new government. There were still people who wanted to do the Articles of Confederation, be more independent, more of this sovereign states' rights sort of situation. Uh, we won't go into all of that because that's a whole other bag of cats that eventually leads to the Civil War later on down the line, four score and seven years from now. But at this point, there is still heavy debate, but it is ratified. There are enough people who want it that let it happen. The new government then takes place under now first president of our nation, George Washington, in New York at the time in March of 1789. Amendments to the Constitution were spearheaded in Congress by Mr. James Madison, who would become president later on, as assurances to those who were cautious about federal power. That, that was the thing. People were scared of federal power because they were scared of just becoming another monarchy, you know. There was the whole thing about, you know, the uh, what to call this new head of state. You know, we call him Mr. President now. You know, the President of the United States is Mr. President. But a lot of people were like, what do we call him? Do we call him, like, Your Majesty or Your Highness or Your whatever? Like, because it was just, they were so used to the conventions of a monarchy and and eventually everything was 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 settled but you know that was that whole thing everybody was scared of of just turning into you know you know the kingdom of the united states you know part 2 of what they just got out of and and james madison and others used these first 10 amendments which would you know later be called the bill of rights to help guarantee many of those inalienable inalienable rights that formed a foundation of the, the revolution itself. Those amendments were then ratified a few years later in 1791. And thus, a new United States of America was born and continues on to this day in whatever, you know, model you see fit at the current time. Things are a little bit different nowadays than they were back in the uh, the, the late 18th century into the early 19th century uh, America would prosper very much you would you would then see uh, the move west uh, early in the 1800s Thomas Jefferson would purchase a bunch of that land from a now revolutionized France and uh, then into Napoleon Bonaparte and then those guys sold 
a bunch of American land for basically no money at all, which would double the size of the United States nearly instantaneously. And others will argue, of course, and very well, that you can't just, you know, buy and sell land that you don't own because a bunch of people literally already lived in that land. I'm speaking, of course, of the Native Americans who were already there. Um, but the 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 white Americans um, from Europe, uh, European descent would would then move westward and do what they did, usually in in less than savory ways, to conquer the rest of that side of the American continent, eventually making it all the way to the Pacific Ocean on the other side, from sea to shining sea, as people say. Um, the Americans would end up in trouble with the British war-wise in 1812. But all of these things that we're talking about are stories for another day. This, then, thus concludes the three-part series on the American Revolution from the beginning of the taxation and all of the, 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 the terrible things that the, the, the patriots thought that the British were doing to them, leading to outright conflict and war stalemate, hardships, and eventually, you know, uh, international aid entering the war on the side of the Americans, the Americans and their international allies, France and Spain and the Dutch, eventually beating the British at this game, and then the Americans becoming, you know, their own nation. The United States of America is then formed, and that, as they say, is history. Guys, that's that's it. That's the rest of the American Revolution series. I hope you enjoyed the entire thing. Um, shout out to John Bettendorf. We just had a conversation uh, uh, very recently about this American Revolution series, and it was very insightful for me. Um, hopefully this was insightful for him. Maybe he can use a little bit of this for his students as he goes and teaches a little bit of history in the upcoming school year. Um, as for everyone else, I hope you uh, enjoyed this 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 very small, very non-detailed version of my American Revolution. You know, recap. We could have done a much more detailed thing. We could have gone like like hardcore history style and really just nailed this thing down. But as I said, even in the very first episode of this podcast, the Teddy Roosevelt episode. This is not a podcast that is aimed in that direction. This is just a nice history podcast for you to learn something about a subject matter that either you did know something about and maybe you learned something new or you don't know anything about and now you have a little more cursory knowledge about that thing i hope you enjoyed it um you can find this podcast anywhere podcasts be found in addition you can find this podcast on spotify now spotify has integrated into my podcast hosting. So if you are the type of person who listens to their music on Spotify, you can now listen to podcasts on Spotify. And it's just another method, especially for Android users who don't have Apple Podcasts that probably already use Spotify as their main music source, can now use it as their main podcast source as well. So if you're a Spotify user and you're you know wanting to get into podcasts, maybe you use a different app, Hey, you can do it all in Spotify now if you want to. You can find me personally, the the voice talking to you right now. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow the show's Twitter at The Couch Pod. You can find us on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, and you can find it there as well. Email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com if you have anything to say in that particular method. Guys, I have no clue what I'm going to do next week. But that will be our last major show of this season, the season finale, I guess you can say, of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast season number two. And then we will be taking the rest of uh, August off. You will still get content in your uh, feed for those rest of the weeks in August as I count down the, the, the most popular episodes thus far. Now that we've reached nearly 50 episodes, we can actually halfway legitimately you know, do like, hey, with these most popular things in between time. We will do that for the rest of the month of August. They will be rebranded as, you know, re-broadcasts um, of those things so people don't get confused and think that I'm still doing new shows during that time. I'll, I'll record a new intro and outro for that stuff just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. That'll be the plan for the rest of August. And then as we get into September, we are going to start a new season and we are going to have different people besides me on the show. Get ready for all that fun stuff. But until then, guys, be nice to each other. 
live long and prosper. 